I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So I'm very fortunate to have a very good Buddhist friend. You know, I say fortunate because, well, it's good to have friends. And it's also very good to have Buddhist friends. But also as a Westerner practicing Buddhism in the West, with many of us oftentimes feeling very isolated in our practice, you know, and so for some people, they're the only Buddhist in their whole town, only Buddhist in their old neighborhood, only Buddhist in their family, so on. And it might be the case they're the only Buddhist within their friend circle as well. But I have this one very good friend, and he and I will see each other about once a month or so. And we'll often end up having conversations about Buddhism. And my friend is a very philosophical guy. You know, he, he likes to read a lot of Western philosophy, likes to read a lot of Eastern philosophy about Buddhism, Western philosophy about Buddhism. And we can sometimes get into some very uh, heady conversations, very dense conversations. And I'll admit, as much as I am very fond of him, he's often the source of these heady conversations. I made a bad philosopher because I typically don't like those kind of conversations. But they come up. But we also get to do a lot of nice things together as well. Recently, I got to show him uh, Little Buddha, which he had never seen before. And he's heard me talk about it a lot lately because it's been in my mind as this thing that I saw when I was eight years old that you know, helped plant that seed of practicing Buddhism in my life. So I got to invite him over and we got to uh, have a little lunch and then we got to sit down to some tea that my wife made for us. We even had some palaji uh, biscuits to dip into our tea <laughs> and I got to watch Little Buddha. It was quite nice. Uh, but, you know, he and I will sometimes uh, come upon these issues, which for him are, are quite strong. And for me, I have to, to sit on it for a while before having a, a solid answer. And there was this one time he and I were out to lunch, and he was bemoaning how difficult it feels for him to practice Buddhism in our modern world. And to practice it rightly, traditionally, the way we have it laid out for us in the Pali Canon and the discourses the way we hear it from teachers that we admire. How does he live his life in this way? How does he put it into practice? How does he find the time? How does he live without distraction? How does he not live without certain stresses? Uh, like some lay people, he bemoans the fact that he's a lay person, perhaps partially wishing that he was a monastic, a monk, perhaps believing in how that would smooth things over and make it possible in a way that being a lay person uh, doesn't have it that way. So I gave him a, a, an immediate answer just based off of my intuition, which is to say that, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, harder to practice now than it was in the past, you know, during the time of the Buddha and his disciples. Uh, it could very well be that it, it feels that way because, uh, you know, our attention's a bit more scattered, moved around a bit. And I was bringing up the concept of difference uh, of kind and difference of degree, and we might have the same problems anyone's ever had, but we just have them uh, a bit more, let's say. But then after the fact, I was sitting on it and thinking, well, was that really the best answer? Could I have said, said a bit more? And 
And it was one of those things that I've been thinking about a lot now, thinking about the world and thinking about what it means to practice Buddhism today. And I'm not the only one thinking about this. I see it all the time. And some of the answers we come to can be a bit disheartening because there are people out in the world today who say that you can't practice Buddhism the way it's intended anymore. That contemporary Buddhism has to be one way or the world itself has to be another way or so on. There's always some kind of uh, thing that needs to change for people to be able to practice or the way people practice has to change or some version of that. Uh, to such a degree that people can be really disheartened. You know, I, I have a, a monk friend of mine who uh, was publishing various uh, meditations and talks onto a platform, an app. And recently that app started putting out stuff about what they think contemporary B Buddhism should be, how it should be. And uh, he was a bit shocked and dismayed by the language of it, which was very much about how we can cut Buddhism into little pieces and just take the parts we like. And he uh, decided that he was going to pull his content from that platform because he didn't support it anymore. So it can be really tough with stuff like that going on. Now for me and my relationship to the world, it's a, you know, I, I laugh at my relationship uh, because when it comes to the, the world at large, uh, my exposure to the world is kind of limited in that I've, I've never traveled. Um, I haven't been to very many places. Uh, the only other country I've been to is Mexico, and this is just right over there. Uh, I can count on both my, my, like both of my hands with less fingers than I, would, than I have all the states I've been to. And I think about the, even just the, the room I'm in. For the most part, except for my wife, I, I, have a, I have a room full of people that very likely came from somewhere else, for certainly our monks, right? From Sri Lanka and then came over, right? Uh, you know, even uh, Kashanti, I think you were from another state before moving to California and so on. And here I am. People are always shocked. Wow, a born and bred Angelino. They don't believe it. In fact, this friend I'm talking about, one time I, I got tea with with him and my wife and my friend's partner. And she was, she was a, a bit shocked when she asked me where I was from. And I said, well, here. We were getting tea somewhere. And I said, I think I was born about 35 minutes away from here. She says, wow, I don't think I've actually ever met someone from here. And she was shocked because, of course, she's from somewhere else. So my, my sense of the world is pretty much what I've been able to experience from right here. You know, where I live right now in Monrovia is about 10 minutes from where I was born, quite literally. I was born in Duarte. Driving here to IBMC took about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so on the freeway. We lucked out today. And then here we are. So my world has always been right around here. My exposure to the outside world is because, luckily, where I happen to be is L.A., where a lot of different cultures come together, converge, mixed together. I'm very fortunate in that way. People from other places tell me oftentimes, hey, I'll take you to a restaurant that serves the cuisine of my, my culture. And when you know it, it's actually pretty, pretty close to what I grew up with, if not better. I hear that a lot of the time. San Gabriel, I'm often told, has some of the best chi Chinese, Taiwanese, Vietnamese food in the world. And everyone's very excited and happy about that. And so I get to experience the world through my palate, at least. I turn on the TV and I get to experience the world that way as well, watching a lot of documentaries about various cultures and everything. 
I also have an interest in history and things like that. So I get to learn a lot about the world, but I, I learn about it through my exposure to the people who come here and through the books and resources that have come here. In a lot of ways, I, I highly relate to uh, one of the disciples of the Buddha, uh, Ratapala, who himself was lived a pretty cushy life before he decided to ordain and people were a bit shocked as to why he ordained. Like, look at you, you're, you're young, you're, you're healthy, you come from a good family with a lot of wealth, you have this prospect and that prospect. Why would you live a life of renunciation? And Ratapala ends up responding like, well, because I can see, like I look around and I, I can tell that there, there's more than just the things that you just said are good. You know, yes, I have this youth, but it'll fade. Yes, I have this health, but it'll fade. Yes, I have this wealth, but anything can happen to it. And wealth alone doesn't create happiness. And he goes on and on listing all these things. In a lot of ways, it, it reminds me of what the Buddha had to say about what are called the, the worldly conditions. Um, there are at least two suttas about, about, about that, both in the Anguttara Nikaya, um, the uh, Lokadhamma Sutta, and they're the second Lokadama Sutta, so Dutya Lokadama Sutta. But it's all that but those suttas are also known by another name, which is uh Lokavipati, which is the failings of the world, which I think are pr probably more on the money than just worldly conditions. Now the Buddha talked about them as worldly conditions in the suttas in question. You know, he talked about uh, gain and loss. He talked about uh, status and and loss of status. He talked about praise and loss of praise or censure. You know, he talked about pleasure and pain as the conditions of the world. And he talked about how the worldly person is the one that derives some type of meaning from that and tries to find happiness from that and ends up being burned as a result because of the inconstancy, because of the stress, because of the whole not-selfness of that whole problem. We can't rely on those things as a source of happiness. Because wherever gain is, there will be loss. Wherever there is praise, there will eventually be censure. Wherever there's status, there will be disgrace. And wherever there's pleasure, there will be pain. So we can't rely on those things. And so the Buddha talked them about them as worldly conditions. But since then, we've also been able to talk about them as failings of the world. Now, the, the list that we have is not exhaustive. There are many ways we can look at the world and see its failings. And it's not that necessarily that there's something wrong with the world. There's just simply, from a Buddhist perspective, something wrong with looking for happiness that is secure and lasting and truly harmless in the world. Because the Buddha also says in other suttas that there is no safety in the world. There is no guarantee in the world. And that's the way the world fails us. So this discussion I was having with my friend, it was very much about in his eyes, how, how easier it must have been, how much easier it must have been to practice during the time of the Buddha. Now, for sure, if you were one of those few people who, in the whole world over, managed to be born really close to where the Buddha was, because I think the Buddha probably traveled about as much as I did, right? Uh, you were fortunate if you were born there, and you were fortunate if you came across him and be, got to be his disciple. But the rest of the world probably had whatever it had going on. But the people who were practicing at that time, it was easier in the sense that they had the Buddha to practice with, the Buddha as a teacher, as a guide. 
But on the inside, what they were dealing with are a lot of the same things that we all have to deal with. The worldly conditions haven't changed. And human nature hasn't changed either. In Buddhism, we talk about the effluence, the various qualities that we have inside of us that lend to our suffering. Very broadly, we can just talk about greed, hatred, and delusion as these unwholesome qualities that we have inside. And that's oftentimes what we're working with. The world outside has always had its qualities. It's been good, it's been bad, it can be really good, it can be really bad. Which is why it's sometimes useful to have that much larger perspective on rebirth and various realms. Because even within that system, the Buddha says, even then, you can be in the lowest hell, you can be in the highest heaven, and it's still not good enough. Because it's not reliable, it's not constant, it's not permanent. It could be whatever you gain that way can be lost in that same way. Gods fall and are forgotten. Gods are reborn and become humans. So we can't rely on this world to be a certain way before we practice. I think that that's one of those things that I wish I had had a chance to tell my friend, and I probably will next time I see him. That if our concern as people trying to practice now is that our life might be in some instances too comfortable, well, make your life a little less comfortable, right? Now, for people who are truly in a situation in life where they, they aren't able to pull themselves out, and luckily, because I have eyes and can watch TV and documentaries, and also just because I have eyes and I've been in Los Angeles, I've seen all kinds of, of suffering. Now, I haven't gone to the third world countries a lot of people will bemoan and talk about, but I have been one of those people that misjudged which street he was on at night and ended up walking through Skid Row at night. And I got to have those mixed emotions of great pain and sympathy watching the, the people there, but then also, on the other hand, feeling scared for my own safety and, and so on, and all the mixed feelings that happened afterward as well, reflecting on those events. So there's that kind of suffering. But then there's also the suffering of the people that have too much, have too much free time, have too much access to pleasure, have access to a lot of distractions. And, you know, if we, if we wait for those things to change, to practice, there's no guarantee. The poor cannot wait to be rich to practice, and the rich cannot be, wait to be poor to practice. Those who are ill cannot wait for their health to get better before they practice. Those who are well should not wait until they are sick to practice and so on. Various forms of that. For the, for the comfy sort, that their issues are more just the distractions of life, we can't wait for Netflix to run out of shows and movies. It's not gonna happen. We can't get onto TikTok and wait for the last video. It's purposely, purposefully designed that way, TikTok. You flick and there's another three minute maybe one minute video, and you flick and flick, and then maybe you'll come across one of those experimental 10 minute one that people don't even have patience for anymore, so they skip that one entirely. And it's just a three minute video, three minute video, three minute. And there's no end to your feed. Your For You page does not end. We are not ever free of distraction. The world is always distracting us. We're, no, we're never free of the worldly conditions because that's the way the world spins around. In fact, that's, one of the ways that the worldly conditions are even talked about. They're talked about in terms of worldly winds. They're buffeting around us all the time. Is it all that different for us than it was for the people during the Buddha's lifetime? 
Not really, you know. I think it is a, a difference of degree, you know. Uh, we can't say that whatever play that they were watching is the same thing as like a mega smash Marvel movie. I'm not going to pretend that whatever little thing they were doing with Shadow Puppets is like watching Iron Man. But distractions are distractions. When it comes to our happiness, we're learning to turn inside and look what's happening in here. Which is exactly the Buddha's uh, instructions to us. That there's the outer world, but what we are concerning ourselves with is the inner world. We're turning inward. The worldly conditions will always remain as they are. In terms of what we require of the world, in terms of how we're dependent on the world, ideally we bring them down to what's truly simple. For monastics it becomes very clear, it's the four requisites. You're dependent on the world to the extent that you need food, that you need clothing, that you need shelter, that you need medicine. In truth, it's not different for a lay person either. A lay person, that's also truly what you really need. Requisites are requisites. They're what you need to sustain your life, your health, and to sustain you in practicing the path, developing the path, working and striving towards our own liberation, which the Buddha told us was our ultimate happiness, our securest happiness. Because once we're liberated, we're no longer bogged down by greed, aversion, and delusion. We're no longer bogged down by, by karma and rebirth. We're no longer bogged down by the worldly conditions either, the way the world works. We're free inside, in our mind and our heart. For a lay person, there's often other things that need to happen. You know, certainly those who decide to, to have children, but even to be a, a single person in the world. I'm of that millennial generation. Lots of us are not choosing to have kids. Many of us still choose to have partners, spouses, and so on. But some of us also, I know quite a few that are still lone wolves out in the world. The only person they got to worry about is themselves. But they still have to worry about themselves. They do have the worldly conditions, sure, but they also have a body with needs. And so they also need requisites. And they have to have jobs to pay for their bills, to pay for their food, their shelter, their medicine, their clothing. And all the stresses that goes with that. Having a commute, having a boss, dealing with customer service, having to deal with the same dumb questions over and over and over again. Every once in a while when I like to relax, I will, I, I actually do have TikTok on my phone. Oh, surprising. And every time when I like, sometimes when I like to relax, I'll, I'll, I like the ASMR stuff. There's people doing little whispery things. I don't know. Every once in a while it's a nice thing to relax to. But sometimes I'll come across a live you know, when someone's actually performing in their living room or wherever, and they got hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people watching them. And I'll maybe spend five minutes, and I'll see them having to answer the same question. There's this very kind man who does uh, ASMR stuff, TikTok videos in um, Canada. I think lives in kind of Vancouver area, something like that. Uh, he, has, he has a beautiful background because he, he lives up in some kind of high-rise, his, his apartment that he's in, and there's a beautiful, you know, cityscape behind him. And he has to answer the same question every single night, not once, not twice. I can't count how many times. Is your background real? Yes, it's real. Anyway, is your background real? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real. And this is how he pays for that really real background behind him. It's through his, his TikTok where he has to answer the same dumb question every single night. Every single night. And... Uh, that's what he does to make sure he has his requisites and then whatever else that he does for his own pleasure. 
Now, talking about the world in this way, you know, oftentimes can sound world-denying because the Buddha is definitely telling us the world is not your source of happiness. The world is not your source of safety or assurance. That is found inside you. It's found in your heart. It's found in your mind. It's something you develop through the training of the Eightfold Path. But that isn't to say that it, that's the world's fault that your happiness is inside. The world is just how the world is. And there's a lot of good and bad in the world. I mean, of these eight worldly conditions, four of them are actually quite positive. You know, if you have some wealth and gain of some form or another, that's not a bad thing to have, you know. To have pleasure, not bad. You know, so on with, with praise, with status. Those alone are, are not bad. It's clinging to them. It's the same way that we talk about the aggregates in Buddhism. The, the kind of activities that we do with our body. You know, we have form, we have feeling, we have perception, we have fabrication, we have consciousness. And some people like to use that as a definition of what we are as a person. We're a conglomerate of all of these various aggregates. But the Buddha talked about them as clinging aggregates precisely because these are activities that we do that help us cling to the world, cling to rebirth, cling to samsara. So we're not supposed to find selfhood in the aggregates at all. But it isn't that the aggregates in themselves are bad. It's those very aggregates that we put to work in the practice. When we do any of, of, uh, any of the, the work of the Eightfold Path, whether we're practicing sila, whether we're practicing samadhi, whether we're developing panya, we're doing so with the aggreg aggregates. You sit down to meditate. There's form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness all coming together, body and mind, unified in breath, if that's your focus on your meditation, your object of meditation. When you're looking at your conduct, your sila, that's the same thing that you're doing as well. You're looking at form, feeling, perception, fabrication, consciousness. What am I thinking? What am I speaking? What am I doing? And the same thing with wisdom. Wisdom, our cultivation of insight and all of that, is also an understanding of what we're doing in body, in speech, and mind. Recently, I was listening to a talk uh, by Jay Garfield, where he was talking about his own teacher. And Jay Garfield is a scholar, and by his own admittance, he doesn't actually practice, but he has had Buddhist teachers, monastics. And there's a teacher of his who told him that the whole enterprise of Buddhism, all of the philosophy that we can speak, all of the psychology that we can speak, all of this whole spiritual path that we have in the Eightfold Path, all comes down to ethics. And so ethics might you know, strike us as like, you know, morality, what it means to be right, wrong, whatever. But ethics also just means what do we do and what are we doing? So that is what it means to say that Buddhism always boils down to ethics. All that we do in Buddhism is in learning to put into practice. So very much straightforward, what are we doing? What are you doing right now in this moment? And that means that whatever the world is like, you can be in heaven, you can be in hell, you can be here, and it can be boring. That's fine. What are you doing? Not where are you, what are you doing? Always look at the path in terms of action. Now, when I was having lunch with my friend, that's not all that I said. I gave him a very quick answer, then we talked about something else. But since then, since I've been thinking about this, the conditions of the world. This is my more full answer on, on the topic.
which is, it's not that the world has made practicing today any easier or harder than, than it's ever been. The world has always had this same quality to it. It is consistent in that. It's consistent in the sense that it is inconstant. It is not reliable. There is stress in living in this world, in any world. And so by the Buddha's understanding, it's not worth claiming as I, me, or mine. It's not worth claiming as something that we can depend, be dependent on. Certainly not in terms of our own happiness, our own safety, our own refuge. We don't take refuge in the world as a Buddhist. We take refuge in the triple gem, what I paid homage to at the very beginning of this talk. We take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dhamma. We take refuge in the Sangha. And after we've developed and gone really secure, the Buddha says what we're really taking refuge in is in ourselves and the Dhamma. We make ourselves an island. Once we've done that, once we have that foundation, rather than being in these raging waters, we have a stable, secure place to sit. We can then look around this world and realize that it really isn't all it's cracked out to be, right? All, all, all that we have been told or promised, all that we might hope or dream that it could be. We start turning inward to find happiness. We try to turn inward to understand ourselves enough, to cultivate ourselves enough that we are truly free and liberated. That is true security. That is true peace and liberation. So, uh, as I've been doing recently, I, I will end the talk by wishing you all success on the path and hoping that what I've said today in some way inspires you to practice. The Buddha himself, when he talked about how he taught, he only said that he instructed and the rest was really inspiring, encouraging, and rousing to practice. So hopefully I've hit, hit those all myself, given a little bit of instruction. But otherwise I hope that I have inspired, encouraged, and roused you all to keep developing in the path. Because even if it might be difficult to practice today, it is not impossible to practice. And even if it might be an uphill battle to eventually achieve freedom and liberation, Nibbana, it is not impossible. It was not impossible for the disciples of the Buddha. It's not impossible for us today either. So hopefully that resonates somewhere in your heart and you can take that out into the world and into your practice. Thank you for listening.